This is the Ed Milet Show. Fitness, finances, and family. We all know someone right now in our life, or we have, who's not ethical, who's not a good person, who's winning, and you're like, I can't believe they're getting it, right? Why can't I? I'm a good person. I treat people well. I'm honest. Most people's will to win is for sale. It's for sale. Most people's will will is for sale. To win is for sale. They can be bought. Uh-huh. I can't be bought. The comfortable road will never lead you to the person you are destined to be, ever in your life. Grab a snack and chew on today's lessons from a man who went from growing up in a middle-class family to building one of the most successful financial service businesses to now being one of the top motivational speakers in the world. He's Ed Milet, and here's my take on his top 10 rules for success. Okay, let's kick it off with rule number one, my personal favorite, alter your beliefs. There's this governor on our lives, and it is a governor, and it's, a, it's your identity. It's this internal, it's what you think you're worth. It's what you think you deserve. And the problem for good people, see, we all know someone right now in our life, or we have, who's not ethical, who's not a good person, who's winning, and you're like, I can't believe they're getting it, right? Why can't I? I'm a good person. I treat people well. I'm honest. Here's the reason why. By the way, the unethical person, eventually, karma, uh, you reap what you sow, comes home to roost. But if you're a good person, this is so important people understand this, because it took me a long time. A good person in any endeavor will only take from it what they think they deserve, what they think they're worth. In other words, if there was a pizza here, you're a good person. You don't take all 12 pieces. Right. A good person thinks there should be an equitable distribution. Yeah. I'm a little bigger, so I might take seven or yeah. eight. You know, and, right? I, and, and I would <laughs> arm wrestle you for it. <laughs> you would beat me. <laughs> I don't know about that. You're a moose. But, <laughs> but long story short, what is is that you a good person will not take more from the table of life than they think they're worth or they think they deserve. And so you have this governor on your identity. So what happens is our it's like a thermostat. Our lives get going. We start doing really well. If we're a 75 degree and our life gets to 85 and 90 degrees, unconsciously we go, we don't know we're doing it. We, we start to cool life back down to get it back to where we're comfortable. The reverse is also true. When things start to go really bad and you're broke and you're struggling, you find a way to heat your life back up to what you think you're worth and you deserve. So the way we alter our life is sure we got to alter our behavior and our relationships and our circumstances, but the only way it's permanent is that we alter that governor, that thermostat, and we start to believe we're worth 85 degrees of life, 95 degrees of life, 110 degrees of life. And there's ways we can alter that. How do we alter it? A couple different ways. A, one is what you just said, is that you put yourself in circumstances that are demanding of you past what you think your capacity is, and when you succeed at them, you build a new water line. You do. You you throw yourself out there past where you're comfortable, and you and you do an 85 degrees behavior, and you knock it out of the park, and you go. Oh, your brain starts to believe it repetitiously. When you start doing that, you build a new line. Now you're 85 degrees. That's number one. The second way, though, is association. If you're around people, and whatever that endeavor is, if it's a sport you're in, or mm-hmm. if it's a business, or your faith, or your peace, if you begin to associate with people who live in that space at a higher temperature than you through association you get heated up yeah and so if you're an athlete for example you're a 70 degree athlete and you start training all the time with 85 and 90 degrees your identity through osmosis goes up if you're a person who's trying to improve their faith in their life or their their personal peace about them you all know this you've seen it when you start to hang around people that are a little bit more peaceful than you or meditate a little bit more through that association over time the thermostat changes Mm -hmm. in that area and so it's both behaving in certain way and then your associations usually change believe that rule number two don't sell your will to win most people's will to win is for sale 
It's for sale. Most can, people's will will is for sale. To win, it's for sale. They can be bought. Uh-huh. I can't be bought. So uh-huh. if we give you just if, if, most people, if we gave you just enough money, if there's a certain dollar amount, you'd stop uh, working hard. Wow, we give you a title, you stop working hard. We give you a car or a plane or a house. Dude, or that's we, the book, bro. That's the, the book. book. Is that the book? Yeah, that might be the book. That is the book. So, will, your will to win is for sale. That's right. And I decided once I realized that because I watch it happen with people in their body and their finances and their family and their faith, whatever it is, I went, I'm not for sale. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a place you're going to buy me. Mm. You can't get me. There's not a stop, a place, a destination where you're going to get me to relent, to quit. I want to improve. That doesn't mean I don't struggle with my motivation from time to time. Yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. mean I don't get confused or down. Of course I do, yeah. but I'm not for sale. Yeah. You can't buy me. And you know this too. We see friends of ours, even guys in their 60s, and they sold their company for blah, blah, blah. And now they golf nine days a week or whatever. You know, That's fun, but yeah, they're for yeah. sale. They were bought. You were bought. You were for sale. Uh-huh. I'm not for sale. Rule number three, serve people. Everything in your life happens for you, not to you. I'm just a huge believer in that. And so uh, my baseball dream ended. I had an injury, probably gave me a premature end to occur that would have ended anyways in hindsight because I played with enough great players that I kind of know there was a gap in just God-given ability level, not work ethic, but I think to be the greatest, there has to be some proclivity for it and work ethic, right? And so I kind of maxed out my limited abilities. Um, And so when I got released, I ended up moving back home with my parents. I couldn't find a job. I was depressed. I spent about a year at my parents' house, just broke in every way, financially, spiritually, mentally, physically. I remember my dad came home. My dad had just got sober. And my dad said to me, hey, I met this guy at a meeting. I got you a job. You get your ass down there tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Getting out of this house and getting a job. And I'm like, okay, I have a college degree. You know, I'm being picky for a year watching Maury Povich reruns every day on TV and Jerry Springer. I go down there at 6 a.m. I walk in. I said, hey, my name's Eddie Milet. I'm here for the job. They're like, what job? I remember this vividly, right? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, They just told me you'd know. And they go, well, we have no idea who you are and we don't know what the job is. They said, do you know who's hiring you? I said, I don't remember. And they go, well, then you need to come back. And I go to the door and I go, wait a minute. His name's Tim. They're like, there's a lot of Tims. And I go, well, I know he must be an alcoholic because he was at a meeting with my dad. And they go, oh, drunk Tim. We know Tim, right? And where I was was a place called McKinley Home for Boys. It was a group home, a campus of group homes. All my boys were wards of the court. They were removed from their family either because their parents were incarcerated, killed, or were molesting them. And I ended up in Cottage 8. Cottage 8, I had 12 boys. They were 7 to 10 years old. And I walked through that door that morning, not even knowing what the job was, and it transformed my life. I mean, in an instant, brother. I just saw these eyes, these little boys, and they just wanted someone to love them and believe in them and care about them. And I'd have this big belief that people that go through any dysfunction in their family or abuse as a kid, I think our eyes are different. We just have these different eyes, man. And so I could connect with these guys. Mine wasn't as severe as theirs, but I knew what it was like to have that kind of anxiety and that kind of stress and that kind of pressure put on you as a little boy. And I became like their father. I was there with them on Christmas and Halloween and their birthdays, and I lived with them. And it changed my world because in that instant, I went from being this athlete who was ego, recognition, significance, gonna get rich, it's all about me. Always when you're a good athlete, you knew this growing up, it was always accolades. All of a sudden in that instant, it became about serving people making a difference in other people. I'm like, oh, this is what makes me happy. Oh, I was actually born to serve and help people. Crazy, no one, that never happened playing baseball. And while I worked there, two years into it, the financial business that I'm in came along. 
and I started in it part time and I'm the, I was the rare young businessman who approached the business world from a place of service and giving and not making money. And ironically, the more I served people, the more I made a difference, the more I contributed, the more I was rewarded financially. I didn't do it for that reason, but that's what happened. So that's how I got into the business was actually, and again, everything, my dad wasn't an alcoholic. He's not at that meeting. I don't get that job. And if he wasn't, if it wasn't alcoholic, I wouldn't have connected with those boys. So all of that in hindsight happened for me, right? And, and, and had I met the financial business before that, I'd have flown out of it. I'd have been about ego, making money, and when that didn't happen, I'd have left. Yeah. And so it all happened in the right sequence. Rule number four, overcome struggles. I kept my job at McKinley and part-time I started in the financial services industry and started to build a team of people and started to get my licenses and that transition. And I struggled like every upstart entrepreneur does. Well, it I takes tried like to three to five years until you really oh. get a few clients, you know. It, not, in any business, I don't care if it's yeah. financial services, tech, a dry cleaners, uh, entrepreneurs, the first five years is just full of false starts. Yeah. You get it going, then you don't. You get it going, you take a step forward, you take three back. It's constant false starts. It's constantly thinking you have it going. It's constantly negotiating in your mind the price you're paying. Is it worth it? Should I quit? Should I give in? I'm constantly, I spent the first five years daily contemplating quitting. Yeah. All the time. Even it's not in the good fun. Time. It wasn't fun. And, and even, and there's just a part of you, I think in anything you're doing when you're struggling, is this really for me? Is this my destiny? Should I be doing this? And we misread failure from some sign, you know, is this a sign I shouldn't be doing it? You know, is this a sign I am, you know, not cut out for this instead of looking for signs that you can win. Right. And so I spent the first five years literally trying to find ways to quit, trying to find ways to get out, struggling and struggling and struggling. And I went broke. I lost a car. I had the water turned off in my place. I, you know, I had a, I, had a, I bought my first house. I ended up having it foreclosed mm -hmm. on eventually. So I'm not that house with the unicorns that you saw, <laughs> right. Or my beach place. Like that's all the after people don't realize that there were just years and years of, of grinding and struggling and worrying in the beginning. And then, then I made some mental changes and some shifts yeah. that altered my life. Then again, rule number five, find mentors. I knew I wanted to be successful. I think like in most things like they show up eventually, but maybe they don't look like the way you thought they'd look when they show up, uh -huh. right? So I was gonna be a baseball player. Uh -huh. From the time I was a little boy, I was gonna be a major league baseball like, like player. How, how young? Oh, four or five years old, okay. talking about that, knowing players, studying yeah. it, telling people I was gonna be one. Looking telling, a certain way. Trying to be athletic, and I'm a little right, dude right, naturally, right. trying to build my body up and build myself up. Little and, dude. Well, I am. I mean, I mean, you know, but, but I got little wrists and I don't do Pilates, but like you do, but I do work out. But, but anyway, and the Pilates looks good on you. You look younger than I do, brother. So, but anyway, I did, I did, uh, I did grow up wanting to be somebody. And then I got a mentor when I was really young, mm -hmm. Hall of Fame baseball player named Rod Carew, who most of you out there would probably know, grabbed me when yeah, I was a yeah. young man and started pouring how, belief how, how into me. How young was that? Uh, I was probably nine. Okay. He grabbed wow. me, started pouring wow. belief why? into me. Why? Why he he saw me you? at a baseball camp, saw that I was a little guy, uh -huh. saw that I had some potential. I kind of swung like him and batted like him. Uh -huh. And so I spent the better part of my youth being mentored and coached one-on-one -on -one by a Hall of Fame baseball player. Mm -hmm. And he didn't just pour baseball tools into me. He poured belief. You're going to be somebody someday. Mm -hmm. You're going to do something great. So I had someone in my ear I respected believing in me from when I was young. Mm -hmm. I think that helped me. Rule number six, chase discomfort. 
I kind of grew up in that space that is dangerous because it's like a slow asphyxiation, right? I grew up what I'd call like middle class, but probably the lower side of middle class too. So I think there's an, I've told you this, I think there's an advantage sometimes of growing up rich because you got connections and you see the right behaviors modeled maybe. When you're poor, a lot of my buddies that are successful now that were poor, they knew what they didn't want. They were fighting, they learned to struggle. They grew up sooner, right? They didn't, they couldn't make excuses. They had to learn to be self-resilient. The middle's difficult because good's the enemy of great, right? And so it wasn't horrible. It wasn't like there wasn't food on the table. It wasn't like I didn't get a present on my birthday, right? So you kind of start to think that's what life is. No one in my family ever talked about dreaming or winning or being wealthy. Same time, we weren't really running from something either. So there's like, there was no stimulus. The stimulus when you're poor is to get out of there. The stimulus when you're rich is to replicate it. There was no stimulus from where I'm from. And so probably the rarest background when you meet somebody that's successful is the middle. It's actually the rarest that you meet somebody, they're from the middle. And so a lot of your listeners come from that place because most people are in the middle, right? And so I'm sort of, I think, an example of some of the things maybe you would need to do to get out of that space, to move from good to some, some form of greatness in your life. Yeah, yeah. it's comfort, right? That yes. word comfort can be a killer, right? So and so that's exactly why I wanted you to, to point that out is because so many of us do come from that and also we're maybe existing in it right now. So true. And how important is it to stretch ourselves and to really kind of get comfortable with discomfort? You do, you need to do that. Malcolm X is a guy that I've read a lot about. And um, Malcolm X, my favorite quote of Malcolm X is, is, that which you do not hate, you will eventually tolerate. And so there has to be this point in your life where what you want is so much greater than where you are, you're in such discomfort. In other words, the gap between what you're dreaming of, what you're destined to do, what you're capable of, you're aware of it compared to where you are, that tension between the two has a pull power to it, right? And so it's, it's important all the time that wherever you are in life that you're chasing that next version of you, there's this, there's this thing I'm ex just unbelievably passionate about that is that I have this theory that, I've told you this before, but that I think that at the end of your life, there's this place you come to, and I'm a Christian, so I think at the end of my life, I want the Lord to go, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter what your faith is, you probably are aware there's history being made or an accounting. But I also think he's gonna go, hey, by the way, this is who you could have been. I think he introduces you to the person you are capable of becoming. I really believe that, that the end of your life, you're gonna get introduced to the person you could have been, you were destined to be, that he made you to be. And so I'm chasing that dude. Every day I'm chasing that dude. That's the pull power for me. Every decision I make, the things I go through in my life, whether I'm gonna go to the gym, whether I'm gonna make a phone call, how I'm gonna eat, does it get me closer to that guy? Because I think the best end of a life is well done by the Lord and, and you're identical twins with that person. The bad end of a life would be, I meet this man I could have been and we're total strangers. I mean, we're just complete opposites. I know nothing about this guy. There's no familiarity at all. And it means that I went down these easy roads. I took the comfortable road. The comfortable road will never lead you to the person you were destined to be, ever in your life. And so I don't, if, you, if you don't become obsessed with chasing that person, you end up never meeting him. Rule number seven, master the art of persuasion. Persuasion in anything. So if you want to persuade your children, if you want to persuade someone to take a look at your faith, if you want to persuade someone in business, if you want to persuade someone to help you in anything or help them in anything. It's real simple for me, monster belief. And so you can't transfer to me that which you're not experiencing yourself, right? So you can't give me that. People are always trying to come up with a magic word, the magic clothes, the magic this. 
And there are words you should and shouldn't use in persuasion, no question about it, right? There are, think, there are words that are more effective than other words. And clearly, to be successful in any business, you need to know what those words are in your business. But the best persuaders, the best motivators, the best speakers, the best physicians, the best school teachers, the best parents are incredible persuaders. And what they do is they come from a monster place of conviction and belief that they can transfer you to because people respond to energy much more than they do words. They respond to what they feel, not what they hear and see. Hear and see are real low-level influencers. Energy, spirit, transfer of energy is what people respond to. And so I'm cognizant all the time of getting in a state of total belief and certainty about what it is that I'm going to represent or speak on if I'm speaking on stage about a particular topic and then transferring that energy into people. And that seems generic or hokey, but it's actually what great persuaders do. In fact, if you're listening to this, you think of anybody that you know who's incredibly persuasive. They may have great words. They probably do. But it's something you feel from them, right? And that's the difference between a great doctor and a so-so doctor. A great doctor says, here's the prescription. You're out of here. Another one. Is they, this going to work or not? Right? I don't know. The yeah. Another one, you leave there feeling that you're going to be healed, feeling yeah. you're in good hands. You feel their certainty. You feel their confidence. Same when you hear a speaker, if you're buying real estate from somebody. But it's not just buying things. It's a, a great pastor in a church. A great person, if you do TM, who's taught you TM, it's their certainty, it's the energy you feel. And so for me, it's always getting to, I have to really believe what I'm saying. I have to really feel it to transfer it to. Rule number eight, get up fast. You and I have watched with every successful person that we know. Everyone gets hammered, man. Everyone gets knocked down. Mm -hmm. You get a, you miss a close, someone changes their mind. You, you get rejected in an interview, you, 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 you lose your baseball career, whatever mm -hmm. the hell it is. It's not whether you're getting knocked down. It's not even whether you get up. Everybody eventually gets up. Everybody gets up. Yeah. It's the time you're on your ass. It's the time you stay on the mat. So what happened was my dream got squashed. Instead of laying around for six or eight months, I was up immediately, like that day, off the mat. Now my eyes are open. Your eyes are closed when you're on the mat. Yeah, yeah. And so the longer you stay on the mat, just because you've been defeated, you've now become blinded, as you said, and, and it's prevented from getting any other opportunity or blessings in your mm -hmm. life. So the key is getting your butt up, like literally getting up and opening your eyes again and chasing again. You're going to get up, so you might as well do it now. Rule number nine, rely on your habits. Here's the thing that I get asked all the time. How did you stay motivated all the time? People ask me that all the time. And the answer is I didn't, and neither did you to become successful. The separator in life is really important. People think the most inspired, motivated person wins. Nah, not really. It's the person who can work on the days they're not inspired and motivated. It's what do you do when you're not feeling great? What do you do when it's not your best day? How do you do that? Carries you through as rituals and habits. So when you're fatigued, when you're tired, when you're under pressure, you react reflexively. And so successful people rely on habits and rituals, not just their inspiration and motivation level. Of course, we're both professionals at being motivated and inspired, but that's not every day, every minute. And so what do I do? I work on the days because my habits and rituals carry me through. And so for me, here's how I look at my, my life and my day. If I can control the first 30 minutes of my day, and the last 30 minutes of my day, I have a whole lot better chance of the middle of my day being controlled. And so I'm a freak about the first 30 minutes of every day. It's really about the first 45 minutes. And I'm obsessive about the last 45 minutes of every single day. That gives me some illusion in my mind and measure of control. The other thing it does, it delivers to me habits and rituals that serve me, that I do every day that are consistent. It gives me comfort 
in stormy times. That ocean out there is raging at the top right now, right? The waves are crashing. At the bottom of that ocean, it's completely calm. At the bottom of that ocean is the habitual part of the water, right? It's the, it's the, it's the part of the water that stays the most consistent. That's why it's so calm, okay? So when you see someone out of control, their emotions are up and down all the time. This is someone who is without rituals and habits. Successful people have those, and so they do. And so it keeps me calm, it keeps me comfortable. And rule number 10, the last one before a very special bonus rule, is be a champion. This morning was very unusual. Number one was the water was unusually cold this morning, uh, really cold. And the waves were huge, very big waves this morning. And both of those things made me think about business. And there's an application for you that I wanted to share with you. The first one was just getting into the water this morning. It was freezing. And when I had to get in there, I had to make a decision. How do I get in? Do I kind of take my time where I go my feet in first, kind of get adapted and then come out, get adapted, go back in up to my waist, get a little warmer, then come back in up to my neck, you get the deal. But all that would do is extend the pain. All that does, it's logical, it makes sense. Don't go until you're ready, take your time. But really all that does, what does that really do? That extends the pain. And so I didn't do that, I did what the pros do, right? Which is what people do in every endeavor that are champions is I ran, boom, right in, headlong, right into the water, right? You dive in, boom, there's a shock. But then you get adapted so much more quickly than you could possibly imagine, and then you're off to riding the waves. Well, the same is true in business. The champions in everything, I don't care if it's your fitness, if it's your, uh, your family, your faith, you name it, the way that you get great at something is you dive into it and get adapted quickly and you'll be surprised at your ability to adapt and navigate your way through success. The average people in everything, frankly the people who lose are the ones who constantly take their time. They're too logical. They think, well I can't do this until I'm ready. If I'm not ready, I'll mess it up. And I don't want to get, it's too cold, it's too, it's too freezing. Well, the truth is in business, that's not how it works. If you go slow, you're extending the time you're in pain. And worse yet, well, the champions have already dove in, got acclimated, they're out there riding their waves, making progress. You're still on the shore deciding whether you're gonna get ready to get ready. And so if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner, you're somebody getting associated with my firm, which is a wonderful decision, by the way. But if you're going to decide that, You've got to decide that and go and trust the fact that you have your instincts, your background, your training, your mentors, the system around you. And that's true whether you're an entrepreneur in my business or you're one of these firms that I've spoken to on the outside. I want to encourage all of you, if you're going to get in, get into business and go. You'll be amazed at your capacity to evolve and to adapt and to succeed. Financially, my formula is this, and you're never gonna hear this, because there's all this stuff on social media about borrow, 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 borrow. First off, the Bible says, owe no man nothing. So I didn't get rich by creating debt. And I can just tell you that I don't care about what type of debt you have, but the one thing financially is you do not wanna borrow money if you can minimize it against a depreciating asset. If you borrow money for something that's gonna appreciate like a home or an investment property, I'm pretty cool with that, although I still think you should be careful with the debt, but I see far too many people borrowing money against something that depreciates, like cars that they don't need to have just to impress other people, right? Or clothes they don't need to be wearing. And so don't, on credit cards, don't borrow money against stuff that goes down in value as much as you can. The second thing is, live below your means. 
any person listening that's going to get financially independent, you have to pay yourself first. So believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, when I was broke, I still found a way to pay myself, save $25, save $50. Because if you can't save money when you're making a little bit of money, you are not going to save money when you make more money. You think you will, but you won't. You'll continue to spend it. And so there was literally a year when I started to make money. Do you want to get really wealthy? I made several multiple six figures one year, and we lived in a $700 a month apartment. I just saved and saved and saved and saved because my confidence in business came from my ability to acquire and save money over time, which took me a while. But to me, peace of mind is saving and cash. Cash is king. Not enough people are obsessed with saving cash. And so live below your means. Don't borrow money against stuff that depreciates and save money. And here's a biggie. Start reading about money. Start to familiarize yourself. Pick up some books on finance. Start to know what you're talking about. Save your money. Here's the last thing. Only put your money in something. If it's $50 or $50,000 that you completely understand. If you don't understand it, set it in the bank until you understand. Because too many people are investing in stocks, mutual funds, crypto this or that. I'm not saying don't invest in those places. Those are good places potentially to invest. But if you don't understand them, your money should not be in there. You're not a professional gambler. You're a saver and an investor. That's probably my biggest ones on saving money.